If you have a Bible this morning, we're in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38 through chapter 10. So you can find chapter 10 and you're pretty much there. We're going to go back to the last verse in chapter 9 as we start. Um, we have been going through the book of Nehemiah for several weeks now. We're going to, Lord willing, finish up a little before Easter. Uh, a couple Sundays left in Nehemiah this Sunday. And um, we, we're getting to the point here in Nehemiah as, we, as, we, as the book winds down. Um, this morning we're kind of getting a picture of what life change looked like uh, for them in their day. Um, what does life change look like? That's a question we can all uh, ask and think about as we talk about what it means um, to walk with God, be transformed by uh, by God, to be transformed by His Word. What does it look like um, to have God actively changing your life? How does that manifest itself? And we live in a time when many people claim to be Christians, but they, they show no, for lack of a better term, we'll use this word because it's one that we all understand, commitment. Right? There, there's no commitment to God's Word. There's no commitment to God's principles. There's no commitment to God's people, to God's church. Um, but there's a verbalization of who they claim to be um, as a Christian. So they identify with God in Word, uh, but outside of that, in terms of tangible expression, there's not much identification. And that's not how the Bible talks about Christianity. Um, that's not a good picture of life change. That's just good verbiage, right? Um, and here in Nehemiah, we've come to a place where the people have been confronted with their sin and their breaking of the law. In chapter 8, uh, Nehemiah, or excuse me, Ezra stands up and reads the law and the people are broken um, over their lack of obedience to that law. And in fact, they want to mourn and they want to weep and they want to repent and they want to get right and they want to spend time just in, in, in sackcloth and, and dust and dirt on their head. Uh, but Nehemiah and, and the boys tell them, no, it's time for you to rejoice because according to our calendar, it's the, it's the Festival of Booths that's coming up and this is a season of rejoicing. So you're going to rejoice and you're going to celebrate um, God's grace and God's goodness to you or you're actually going to be adding sin on top of your sin because this is what uh, the law tells us to do. And so they they put that aside for a while and they go into uh, into that to that that festival and then in chapter 9 Three weeks later, they come together and they begin to pray and they begin to repent and they begin to confess their sin. That's what we looked at last night, last week. We saw how they had this great picture of who God was and this little bitty picture of who they were and then they saw that God's grace was greater than their sin and that led them to repentance because God's record of grace in our lives is not meant to lead us to sin more or to put off repentance, but it's meant to usher us into repentance. And so that's what we saw. That's what you see there in Nehemiah chapter 9. Well, in the end of chapter 9, the tangible expression of their repentance is they enter into a covenant with God, which was something they did uh, in the Old Testament. And what they're really doing, this is not a new covenant we'll see, it's a recommitment to the Old Covenant. And it's really it's just an expression, they're verbalizing what their commitment to the Lord is going to look like. They're, for lack of a better word, they're rededicating their lives. Right? Uh, they're getting serious about their relationship with the Lord. And the bottom line is, we don't walk with God because we say we walk with God. We walk with God or we don't walk with God because we do or do not walk with God. And the fruit of repentance is not I'm sorry, but life change. And what we see here is life change beginning to take place in their lives. Now we're going to learn at the end of the book, it's not going to last. Uh, because what they actually need is a new covenant and not rededication to the old covenant. So we're going to get there, but at this point in time, we're seeing a picture um, of revival among God's people in the Old Testament. And so, as the people of God, we need to understand that like they did in the Old Testament, even though we're under a new covenant now that we'll see... Um, we need to be committed to God. We need to be committed to His Word. We need to be committed to one another. We need to be willing to stand up and to be counted as, as we're going to see that they are this morning. And we also need to understand that if you don't know Christ this morning, I want to be real careful when I use words like commitment in church because sometimes we think that Christianity is about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and the more committed we are, the more saved we are, the more Christian we are. And we're not saved by that. We're saved by grace. We're saved by, by God's grace. But it will manifest itself, our faith will manifest itself in heartfelt, true commitment to the Lord and to His Word. And in the Old Testament, we're going to see them recommit themselves to the Old Covenant. And my argument this morning is being under the New Covenant and under grace and understanding the Gospel and understanding that the Old Covenant has been, uh, that we have a New Covenant now that has been acted upon with the, with the very blood of Christ, that shouldn't lead us to be less committed to God and to His people, but it actually should lead us to be more committed. And so so what we're going to look at as we read through this passage is we're going to see 
Right here in just a moment. We're going to see, I'm going to kind of summarize this chapter in five statements. All right? Yeah, five statements that express their commitment that are very uh, easy to cross over to us in the New Testament in the church that should express our commitment to the Lord as well. So look with me in chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 9, starting in verse 38. The last verse of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant. Because of all what? Because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, because even though they've sinned time and time again, God has shown grace and mercy to all of them. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Then in verse 1 of chapter 10 it says, And on the, seal, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, and then it goes into this list of names that includes the priests, the Levites, and the leaders of the people. And it's, it's names that are actually written down on the covenant where they signed the dotted line. And we pick up down in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the surface of the house of, service of the house of God, our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our, our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Alright, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for the Old Testament that points us ahead to Christ. And we're grateful for this picture we have here of this covenant that Your people made with You um, to commit themselves to the Old Covenant. And God, I pray this morning as we open Your Word and as we look at it now, uh, as we begin to walk through it, I pray that You would, um, that you would stir up within Your people a deeper uh, commitment to You. Uh, because You have shown Your commitment to us in the New Testament in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us to be serious about our faith and about our walk with You and about our relationship with You and committed to You and to Your people. And, Father, I pray um, that You would open our eyes to understand this truth this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now. That was a lot, and I know it was kind of like you're reading that. You're kind of, what is all this about? You know, there, there's, there's first fruits and tithes, and there's uh, all kinds of things being separated from peoples, and all this stuff that we're just kind of looking at, and we're like, what in the world is talking about here? Now, what we are seeing here, just to kind of summarize it, starting in verse 38, what you're seeing is their response to God's grace in their lives. This is a response to God's grace, to God's mercy, to God's forgiveness, to, to what God has done for them over the years and being faithful to them and providing for them and showering grace upon them. Remember in chapter 9, their prayer that reflected on God's greatness and God's grace in their lives in spite of their continued sin. 
And so they're overwhelmed and they repent. And this is the, the kind of the fruit of that repentance coming out here as they're talking about their newfound commitment to the Old Covenant. Now, it's important to point out, this is not a new covenant that they're making. This is the Old Covenant. The New Covenant would come, but it would be enacted with the Messiah coming and Jesus laying down His life and shedding His blood uh, for the New Covenant. And so... This is a commitment to the Old Covenant. We're going to see, like I said, as we get to the end of the book, that they're going to show that they really need a New Covenant. And uh, and that time is going to come. But this is a recommitment to the Old Covenant. What we're learning here is when people are serious about their repentance, it leads to living differently, as we said earlier. If we continue to do what we've always done, that's not renewal. That's not revival. That's not life change. That's not any of those things. That's just that's just lip service. And this commitment or recommitment is hashed out in this form of a covenant, right? And what we're seeing here is they're creating a new culture in their people. Remember, this is a people who've been without walls in their city. This is a people who, uh, for a long time, were without temple worship uh, as, as it should have been until they had reestablished that. This is a people that have been uh, very backslidden away from God during all this time. And really, the whole situation with them being scattered throughout the lands was rooted in their own sin and their own rebellion against God. And so, this is them experiencing this revival and they're writing it in the form of a covenant and they're kind of recreating their culture. And their culture to be a culture of commitment to the Lord and to His people and to His work. And they want that to pervade their community. And we need that kind of culture today. So there's a lot of good takeaways here for us today under the New Covenant is we want a culture of commitment to the Lord and to His work and to His church. So I told you we're going to sum it up in four, five statements. All right? The first one is, first statement that sums up their commitment is, I am in. All right? I am in. Look at verse 38 there. You, you see that we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names, and that's important, of our princes, Levites and priests. And then starting in verse 10 through verse, verse 1 through verse 27, you have just a list of names. People's names. People that they could go knock on their door and find them. People that they knew who these people were. Uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, this is broken down in terms of of, le- of leaders, Levites, priests, heads of household, and things of that nature. But what we see here is they made individual commitments and were willing to put their literally put their name on the line with representatives of their family, the, the Levites and the priests and all the leaders. Because at the end of the day, their, their name meant something. It was them personally investing themselves in this commitment, standing up and being counted. Because your name's supposed to mean something, right? Uh, when you when you put your name on something, it, it, it means something. It did to them. It was a big deal for them to put their name on the covenant, which was also, by the way, a curse. A curse and an oath. That's how the Old Testament was set up. We'll see here in a little bit. And so they're putting their name on something that, that that's that's very serious. In our day we Maybe we don't take it seriously as we sh- as we should. What it what it means to kind of to put our name on the line for something. Uh, we should. We should think without thinking. The other day, uh, it was a while back. Christy and I were like at a farmers market or something, and, and there was a guy there, and he was trying to get signatures for political office. He wanted to run for whatever it was, Congress or something. I don't know, state Congress or something. And he want he had to have so many signatures before he could get his name on a ballot or whatever. So he was asking for my signature. You've probably seen those, or you'll see um, people that are trying to get your name for some signature on something for, to protect something in the environment maybe or to, or to, get, to get enough things uh, to, to take before um, the, the government and all this sort of stuff. And so and you've got to decide whether you're going to sign that or not. And I, unless they can really explain to me really well in, in that brief few seconds I have with them, I usually don't. Right, because I just don't, because I don't know enough. Right, and I didn't sign that gentleman's thing to run for office. Not because I don't think he should be able to run for office, but I didn't like the way he answered my questions. Right, so I asked him a question or two, and I didn't like his response. So I didn't sign his form, not because I don't think he should be able to run, but because I didn't want my name to be the one helping him run in that particular situation. Because my name meant something, right? And my name should mean something. And here what we're having here is them saying, okay, I'm willing to put my name on this covenant and for me to be held accountable. And notice the leaders go first. It's Nehemiah who's their leader. His name is on there. The leaders of the households whose names are on there because leaders lead. Leaders go first. And it's a list of very prominent people on this covenant. Important people. Priests, Levites, chiefs of the people as we mentioned. And if we're serious about walking with God, we can't be afraid to let our name be on the line. And are we who live under a new covenant and a better covenant that has been acted by the very blood of Christ supposed to be less committed and less personally invested in our relationship with the Lord than they were in the old? Well, no. We should be more so. 
We, we know what's been done. We know the price has been paid. We live in the shadow of the cross that they were looking forward to. And so we should be even more committed. See, your walk with God, the point here is not supposed to be a secret. It's not supposed to be a secret. It should never be a conversation that you're hoping to avoid at work or at a family function. Hope they don't ask about that. Hope I don't have to talk about that. You go out of your way to talk about everything you did on Sunday other than go to church or whatever just because you feel awkward about it. Or You know, you, 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 you hope when you go to the mailbox or whatever and you bump into the neighbor that that conversation doesn't happen. Or It shouldn't be awkward and weird like that. You're, your name's supposed to be on the line. You're, you're fully invested, right? There's a way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be in. That's what it looks like to be committed and to be willing to stand up. See, if we're to have a culture of commitment, whether that's in our own lives or in our community together as, as a community of faith, to the Lord and to His Word, it will only be if individual people actually show that kind of commitment and say, I'm in. Dads who are fully committed to living out God's Word and leading their families in that way. Nobody wondering whether uh, dad is a Christian or not. Nobody wondering whether somebody who serves in a, as a small group leader or on a ministry team or on a committee or as a deacon or any other kind of leadership or service capacity at our church, outside of this church, nobody wondering whether they're even a Christian or not. So I'm in. I'm, full, I'm fully invested in my relationship with the Lord. I'm standing up to be counted. The second thing we see is, the second statement is this, we are together in this, right? We are together. And because these names that are listed, it's really, it's them coming together. It's, it's a lot of names, but there's one covenant, right? A lot of names, one covenant. It's a corporate endeavor. They are committed together. In verse 29, it says we, they join with their brothers. This is not merely I'm in. This is we are in this together. Living for and serving the Lord we see throughout Nehemiah is a community project. In the Old Testament, Israel were the people of God and they were under the covenant, um, under their covenant with God to love and to serve Him together, right? So they, they had come, this covenant that they were in the Old Covenant period, it was, it was for Israel and together as one nation they were under the covenant. It wasn't just like just this mean God have a good thing going. It was it was us together under this covenant, and they had failed time and time again to do what they were called to do as God's people. And what they're doing is they're recommitting in that covenant, but they're it's it's a corporate endeavor. This is not just somebody at home deciding they're going to do this. Not that that wasn't important, but they they do this together. And one of the keys throughout this book is that they build the wall together. They fight off the enemies together. Everything you see them doing, they're doing together. And their commitment to the Lord is also together. Don't you think, as they took what the Word says here was a curse and an oath, they say. They come under this curse and an oath. Knowing this was a community promise, that they were much more likely to be invested in those around them. You say, why is that? Because it affected them. Because now, Joe's walk with God affects me. Because we're in a covenant together and we basically said we're cursed if we don't live by it. <laughs> and so now I care all of a sudden about Joe's walk with God. Because, well, read Joshua. Read when Achan sinned against the Lord. Him and his family conspire and they, and they, they steal. And, and they hide things that God said they weren't supposed to have. And then they go to war and tons of people die. Well, why? Because one man broke the covenant. One man broke the rule. One, one man did what he wasn't supposed to do. It, it, it affected all of them. So when they're all in this together, there's, there's, there's more skin in the game. And now they care about what's going on in the lives of others around them. And so it, it doesn't weaken their community. It strengthens their community. Now, under the New Covenant, we shouldn't be less inclined to community, but more. We're not under a curse. But listen, we're not, we're not less inclined to being in community together and being in covenant with one another. Listen, this is what church membership is. Church membership uh, can be traced all the way back to the Old Testament when they're writing their names down. Ever since the beginning, God's people have been recording who's in and who's not. That's always been the case. You just can't find it. You go all the way back to the Word and they're just keeping records of God. So you see all these lists of names? You ever read through the Old Testament in a year? You read names a lot. 
They wanted to know who was on the team and who wasn't on the team. Sometimes there's a name and it's bad stuff about that guy's name. <laughs> because they wanted to know. And under the new covenant, we have something similar. It's different, but we, we have church membership. It's supposed to mean something to be a member of a church. You say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm not about religion and all those things. That's not religion. That's Christianity. Christianity is not just some pie-in-the-sky believism I just kind of remotely attach myself. It fleshes itself out in community and in covenant and in living this thing together. Right? God didn't design it to work to where I go and believe and live on an island. But that I believe in the context of the community and live out my life with those people in a local church setting. And so that's what church membership is really all about. That's what church membership is about. Or some churches don't even do church membership. And listen, in Baptist churches, we've been notorious for not doing a good job with church membership. We've made it as easy to join churches, and easier to join churches than it is to join Planet Fitness. Okay? And so, it's serious. They much bigger financial commitment over there, and that's the cheapest game in town. Right? And you can't get out. I mean, you try to get out. You can't get out of some of these places, some of these gyms. And it is. We've made it easier in some ways. We want it to be easy. No, we want it to be real. It's supposed to mean something. And we see that in the New Testament. You say, well, how do you, where, do you, where do you even get church membership from in the New Testament? Well, let me ask you some things. There, there's no Bible verse that says you should be a church member, but let me ask you something. When the Bible says obey your spiritual leaders, and it says that a few times in the New Testament, how do you do that if you're not a member of a local church? Who's your spiritual leaders? When the Bible says in Matthew 18, when your brother sins against you and you go to him, he doesn't repent. You go back with more people and he doesn't repent. You're trying to get your brother to repent. And then it says, take him before the church. How do you do that if you don't have a church that you're a member of? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when there's an immoral person who's having an affair with their stepmom, and Paul writes and says, put that person out from among your midst. How do you do that if you don't know who's in your midst and who's not in your midst, who's in and who's not? See what I'm saying? We, you can't obey the New Testament without, without church membership. It's, it's important. It's important. And so when under our covenant, we, 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 still, we, we, we want church membership. We want healthy church membership. We want accountability in church membership. We, it's, supposed to, it's supposed to mean something. It's something we strive for. And in the Old Testament, they had a way to know. Who's in this with us? And in the New Testament, we have supposed to have a way to know who's in this with us. Because God intends for His people to run together. Because we need accountability. We do. You need people that see you enough and know you well enough to know when something's not right. You need, you need encouragement. Because life's hard. The devil's mean. Right? <laughs> so you need, encourage, you need encouragement. We need examples. Because we go through things in life that we've never been through before, but other people have been through, and we, we need to see other people walking with the Lord to inspire all, our walk. We need those things. And so, we need to be in this thing together, and that's where church membership and actively involvement in the local church plays out for us in the New Testament. But number three, another statement, is we are different. In verse 28, says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law, to, uh, peoples of, excuse me, let me back up. All who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. They've separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. That's how they describe themselves as God's people. Separate. Israel was to be different. They were not like the other nations. They were God's people. They were not like the pagan nations. They had separated themselves from these other people. God had separated them, really, from the time of Abraham. And what really had separated them one of the big things here now, visibly, is the law. God had given them the law and said, this is how you are to live your life. This is what it looks like to be holy. I want you to be holy, and this is what it looks like. He gave that to them. And that made them different than every other nation on the planet. They had the law. God had spoken with them. God had told them what He expects from them. And in Leviticus 19, verse 2, God says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that, so that's why they're trying to separate themselves from the people. God had pulled Israel out from the world and set them apart by to be His. He had given them His words, law, so they would know and live like He wanted them to. Now, 
This is about not being like them. This is about now it had very tangible expressions in the Old Testament, and we're going to see here in a minute things like uh, marrying uh, false religions and, and, and things of that nature, the ways that it expressed itself. But the point was they were supposed to be a distinct people. That God's law had made them different. God's calling on them had made them different, and they were supposed to be distinct. They're supposed to be different. Different. And today in the New Testament, Christians, the church is God's people. We're God's chosen people. We're set apart by God to be holy. We're to be different from the rest of the world because we've been purchased by Christ and God has given us His Word so we know how to live and, and we're supposed to live by it. We're supposed to be different than the rest of the world. First Peter 1, 14 and 15. says, As obedient children, he says to the church, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So Peter goes out to Leviticus and he says, guess what? This still applies to you today, right? We see that time and time again. God's people have always flourished when they've lived as His set-apart people and they flounder when they become like those around them. They just do. Being separated from the world, though, is not the same thing as being isolated from the world. That's just weird. There's a difference. There's a difference being weird and being holy. There's a difference in being, you know, um, just like OCD about your uh, about certain things and being holy. And it, there's a difference in being isolated from the world and being separate from the world. Isolated Christians are afraid of the world. They see people as their enemy. They would rather create a Christian subculture that doesn't have to rub shoulders with an atheist than go win the atheist. That's the difference, right? So we want our own coffee shops. So we want our own think this. And we want our own... And we want to create as much subculture as possible to protect ourselves from the big bad people that Jesus died for. Being separated from the world is not the same thing as being isolated. You know why you isolate things? To destroy them. To take them apart. Even if something as simple as in, if you watched back Michael Jordan, if you watch, if you watch Le- LeBron James today, but when I used to actually watch basketball more, Michael Jordan, right? <laughs> or today LeBron James or some of these other great players, what they really want to do is they want to get a player one on one. Even I used to play video games when I was getting, there was a little play you could call in basketball as an isolation play. You get the player one on one. If you're better than them, then you can take them, right? If they're a weaker player, you can just, man, you can just over and over and over and over and over again. Score on them, score on them, score on them. We are the weaker player, first of all, right? <laughs> We're by ourselves. That, isolation's about destruction. God's church doesn't flourish when it's isolated, it dies when it's isolated. There's a difference in being separate. That just means being different, being set apart. Being, being, being holy means you're being set apart for a purpose. It means that you're different. We must be careful in the church that the longer we're here, the easier it is to become more isolated. That doesn't mean we're becoming more holy or more separate from the world. For instance, all our friends can be churchgoers. Church can become almost like a hobby we're here so much. I don't have hobbies. I'm, I'm on committees. <laughs> we can. We can do that. And if we're not careful, we'll become more and more isolated from our neighbors and from our co-workers and from people that don't know the Lord, and we'll become not more holy. You can be churchy and worldly. Yeah, you certainly can. Being faithful to church and having lots of Christian friends doesn't mean we're not worldly. It's about personal holiness. It's about living like being the people that... Listen, Christians aren't holy because they decide to go out and be holy. We're holy because God says we're holy. Understand that? There's a difference. We are holy because of the blood of Jesus. We're holy because of the death of Christ. We're holy because of His resurrection. We're holy because we're identified with Him. and His. He, we have His righteousness. And so, we just are holy. So who say, God says we're holy. So what do you mean by living holy? I mean living like who you are. See what I mean? And so we, we live out the accurate reflection of who God says we are is what, it, is what that means. And that will cause us to be different than the world around us. And we will have different values and different passions and different things. It affects everything about us. It affects how we are, how we are at work, how we raise our families, how we spend our money, how we vote. It affects everything. Everything about you. Everything about, everything about you. There should be nothing in your life that your faith in Christ doesn't touch and affect. 
God has set us apart in Christ for a special purpose, and it wasn't to isolate us from the rest of the world. Number four, fourth statement of commitment, we will walk with God. You see that fleshed out in verses 29 through 39, big, the biggest chunk of our Scripture. Now, this is the big theme throughout the passage. It's a commitment to obedience in whatever God's Word says. You see there in verse 29, it says, We enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. See, in the Old Testament, I mentioned earlier, I want to read you a couple of verses. There was a blessing and a curse attached to keeping the law. Deuteronomy 28.1 If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Blessing. Verse 15, a few verses later, says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. There were blessings for keeping the law, and there were consequences for breaking the law. And Israel understood that a covenant was a very serious business, and the stakes were high when they did this. But they were putting their name on the dotted line, and the whole purpose of them coming together to do this as God's separate people was to say, we are going to walk with God. We're going to walk in His law. He said, we will walk in God's law. They had reaped the consequences for not walking with God, and now they're charting a new course saying that we're going to, this new course is going to be in the law of God. We're going to walk according to Your Word. And churches, we as a church, need a culture of commitment to walking with God and His Word together. We're not an entertainment factory. Right? That's not why we exist. We don't come in here to, to entertain ourselves. We're not a, a country club or a local hangout or a hobby shop. We're a people committed to walking with God. And we have a way that we're supposed to do things. Right? We don't just get to make things up willy-nilly. So how should we govern ourselves? We don't just get to act, we don't get to ask that question. God's told us how to govern ourselves. We don't get to say, well, what, what should we do about that? Well, God's Word, you'll be surprised the amount of things God's Word has to say. And there are areas, certainly... That are, that are less consequential where God's Word gives us freedom in. But we have to understand something. This, this isn't our church. It's God's. We don't get to do things our way. Unless our way is God's way. Right? He's given, he wrote a book. Right? He, 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 he's written a book and He says, this, you walk in this. In everything. In everything. We must be committed to not simply walking the part of God in the part of God's word we find most encouraging or that we like or that's the blessing to us, the coffee cup verses, but in all of it. And if in the Old Testament, if they if it came with blessing and curses and all this stuff, if they were committed to say, you know what, ever God's law says that's what we're going to walk in. If that was how they expressed their life change, how much more should we today in the New Covenant, those of us who have been purchased by God at the expense of His Son, should we be willing to walk in His Word? Right? How much higher should we raise the Word as the bar? Right? God has not lowered the bar for us in the New Testament. He has raised it. (laughs) He has raised it. And then they point out specific areas where they needed to make sure that they obeyed. You'll notice there's three specific areas, marriage, Sabbath, and, and, and the temple worship, that they start really talking about. And it wasn't because these were the only things that mattered. They said they're going to obey all the law. We read the verse, right? But these were specific areas maybe where they had specific failures and specific temptations. The first one was marriage. In verse 30 it says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Well, what's this about? Well, it's intermarriage, not racial. God's not a racist. You shouldn't be either. This is not about that at all. Sometimes it's shameful that people take verses like that of the Old Testament and you know and try to use them to apply them to things that have mean nothing in what they're trying to apply them to. A study Bible can can really help somebody in that. Um, this is not about. This is about they don't know the Lord. This is these are idolaters. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Why the peoples of the land? Not because they were a different race, because they worshipped different gods. This was a command by God. And listen, it's in the New Testament too. That's why when the Bible talks about uh, 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 in Romans, when, God, when, when Paul says that a, a widow can remarry in the Lord, it means she can't just marry anybody. She can remarry in the Lord. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. All kinds of principles for us there. Old Testament, New Testament. God wants His people to marry His people. And they took that seriously. In other words, here's the point. Obeying God and walking in His Word, our theology, all that is supposed to affect everyday life like, like marriage and who you date and things like that. Or it's not real. It's not real. It's, it's supposed to affect those things. So, well, what if I'm a Christian and I'm married to an unbeliever? Well, that's a different story. God says you stay married to them and you try to win them. We're talking about on the other side of the covenant. Before we've entered into the relationship. God's Word is very clear on that. And so we shouldn't flirt with that. And tease with that. Or even go near that. Because it's not God's will. It's not God's plan. And we're committed to walking in His Word. And that means in all of our marriages, we're supposed to be... See, you know, the marriage covenant was... All the way back in the Old Testament existed. And we learned in the New Testament, the whole purpose of it was to point ahead to the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the whole point of it. All these things that we're going to see them recommitting to, marriage, Sabbath, um, the temple worship, it all pointed ahead to Jesus. It all points ahead. It's all shadows that point ahead to Jesus. And we have these same, uh, our versions of these today. The second one you see there in verse 31 is the Sabbath. It says, starting in verse 31, you see them talking about the idea that the people of the surrounded by these nations, they didn't have to worry so much about the Jewish people deciding they were going to sell their stuff on the Sabbath. God had set aside a day and said, on this day, you're not supposed to work. It's set aside for me. You're supposed to worship. You're not supposed to do any work. You weren't supposed to buy and sell and all that. But other people around, they didn't have Sabbath because they didn't have the law. They weren't God's people. And so they might come into Jerusalem one day and say, hey, we want to, we're going to set up our little stand and we're going to sell stuff. And they're saying, we won't buy from them if they do that. Because they knew there was a temptation that, could, that, that, this, could, that this could happen. And they're saying, we, we want to take the Sabbath seriously. The Sabbath was one of the things that made them distinct as God's people. Nobody else had a Sabbath. God gave them the Sabbath. It was a good reminder that they weren't God. Right? Rest does that. Reminds you that you're not God, that you can't do everything, you're not supposed to do everything, and you were you were not made to do everything, and that you're going to die. Right? <laughs> oh, we need that reminder, so we rest to understand that we just can't get it all done, and we need to rest sometimes. We need to trust the Lord. But the Sabbath was much bigger than about rest. It was about the Lord. It was about trusting God. And in the New Testament, the Bible teaches Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. The Sabbath pointed us ahead to the need for us to rest from our works and to rest in Christ for our salvation. And so as God's people, just as we should be a people who model what healthy marriage looks like, we also should be a people that model what it looks like to rest in Christ. James Hamilton in his commentary on Nehemiah points out that all of these big three things that I mentioned... Um, the temple worship that we're about to get to in marriage and, and, and the Sabbath. All of these things uh, point to the Lord, ultimately, but that the Sabbath was ultimately about faith. The question was, would they trust the Lord and not work? Would they trust the Lord and not buy and sell? Would they trust the Lord and let the land rest? Did they believe God and His Word or not? Because that was a real temptation, right, for them. Do I trust the Lord? He's told me to do this, and then it'll be well with me. Do I trust the Lord? And obedience really does come down to that a lot of times. It comes down to do we trust the Lord or not. But Jesus is our Sabbath. Now, the fifth thing and the last thing that we see that they were committed to involves the temple worship that starts in verse 32 through 39. Because it's kind of like its own thing here. It's like a whole big section here, right? And their state, state with this whole section about the temple worship, what they're saying is we will be a worshiping people. They were committing themselves to their very identity as the people that worship God. Worship was a big deal. And we see throughout this, this commitment to the temple worship. Verse 32 is we will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God. Now this wasn't in the law. This was new. They obligate themselves. They're committing to something new. They see that this is needed. To, it's like a temple tax that they're instituting that's needed to ensure that the temple flourishes. And so they're going above and beyond, in other words, because they, we're going to be a worshiping people. And you see it fleshed out throughout that paragraph. Verse 35, they commit to bring the first fruits. These offerings of the ground and of the animals, they're agricultural offerings. They were to help fund those that manage the temple. 
And then we see the tithes it's mentioned there that we read about earlier. They go on to talk about bringing the tithes of the ground and the Levites giving a tithe of the tithes to support the priests. And verse 39, the last sentence is like the summary sentence. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's how you sum that paragraph up. We're not going to neglect the house of our God. We're going to do what needs to be done. Let it be known that we're worshiping people because the very center of worship, of the worship of God's people in the Old Testament was in Jerusalem at the temple. That was the center of worship life. That's what it was all about. And, and this was their place of worship. This is, this is where people went. The priests went to make the sacrifices for the sins of the people. And things needed. there were things that they needed in order to make sure that that could happen. They needed animals to sacrifice. The people around the temple needed to eat. They needed uh, the, the place to go and to worship. They needed to keep the temple up. They needed all those things. And by committing to make sure it's not neglected, they're showing that they're committing to being a worshiping people. Because that's one of their identifying marks. Much like the Sabbath, the temple set them apart as God's people. I believe in the New Testament, we need a cultural commitment to worship in the local church. Now, we don't no longer worship in a temple. And by the way, the church building is not the New Testament equivalent of that Old Testament equivalent. You are. This is not the temple, and it's not the New Testament equivalent to that. We, it's, it's, it's not about buildings anymore, we find out when we get to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we understand that the better temple came, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the very presence of God, and He laid down His life, right? And died for our sin and rose again so that the Holy Spirit would come and would take up residence in all those who believe on Him, and we become little temples of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And living committed to worship means you personally live like a temple of the Holy Spirit. It means being committed to living in light of the reality of God's presence at all times. That worship is not a once a week thing for us, but it's life. It's in all that we do. And corporately, as a body, as the people of God, we don't go to a temple to worship. We gather as the people of God. As, as, as God's people, we come together and we gather in worship. And this is replaced going to the temple. Because we're the people of God and the people are the temple. Now, like they were in the Old Testament, we need to show ourselves committed to worship. You see, first of all, there you notice it talked about the first fruits. Throughout this passage, throughout the Old Testament, you see this idea of the first fruits. They gave the first fruits. They gave the first fruits. The first fruits of our, our agricultural, first fruits of our of our grapes, first fruit of our of our animals. It was always the first, the first, the first, the first. The idea was you didn't wait and see how many lambs you got. In other words, before you decided what you were going to give God, so that you could give Him. Well, okay. I've got ten lambs. I guess I can spare one. Let's see which one. This one's got tiny legs. I'll give this one to God. You know, that's that was what it was preventing. First fruits, right off the top, right. And so I think, well, do I have? Enough? Is the crops going to be good this year? First fruits, right off the top. That was the Old Testament principle. You see that in in Proverbs as well. And you see this. It's the idea you see run throughout the Bible that God wants preeminence in our lives. Jesus said, Seek ye first, preeminence, first the kingdom of God and all these things, and He was talking about clothing and thinking, you know, just everyday cares will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God. God has never been okay with being an afterthought. He's never been okay with having our leftovers. It's never been a cool thing with Him. <laughs> he, he is preeminent. He wants our worship to show that He is preeminent, so He wants to be first. So we give God the best. Are you giving God the best in your life? Do you spend time with God? Do you serve God? Do you make time for these things? Is it a priority? You just, well, if I have something left over. I'll go to church if I have time. I'll, I'll pray if I have time. I'll do this if I have time. I'll do this if I have... That's not first fruit living. Nor is it when we give. Do we give God the leftovers? Are we trying to see what we have left over? Are we giving off the top? Are we, are we giving by faith? Are we giving by addition and subtraction and, and just trying to you know see what we you know? It's giving by faith. That's what they're doing here. They are giving financially to support the ministry for the work for the temple ministry to flourish. They needed the financial support, and so we see that part in here as well. Today we we have our own way of doing this in the New Testament by supporting gospel ministry, and the first and prime that is first and primarily through the local church. A lot of good ministries out there. North Park gives to other good ministries. 
It's good for to give to other good ministries. The first and primary place we give is to the local church. You say, why, why is that? Because that's the one God founded. It's the one He founded. It's the one he started. That's God's mission and vision and His way to reach the world and to make disciples and all those sort of things. It's the local church. So that's why we, we give there first. Because it's God's primary plan. So if we neglect the local church, we're neglecting God's primary plan. Now, the big idea here is that apart from a culture of commitment within God's people, to being that we are a worship, we're supposed to apart from not only being committed to God's word and to keeping God's law and to being obedient, there's supposed to be a commitment to taking worship seriously. That's kind of the big idea of the passage. This part of the passage, they are taking worship seriously. There's financial commitment. There, there, there's, there's time and energy that's being put into this. This is, this is a big deal. And so, how do we interpret that over to us in the New Testament? Worship's a big deal, both individually and corporately, both in the way we live and both in our corporate life. And when we gather together in this room, it's serious business. So we should be committed to worship personally at home in our families, right? So we get the kids, we read a Bible story, we pray, we sing songs, we, we worship, we teach our kids to worship. We come here together and we, and we worship corporately as a church because God's Word tells us to. And we need a family. Families need a family. Your family needs a family. We need a fa- And this is our faith family. And we're, we should be faithful to worship. Right? That's another way we take worship seriously. Christians are getting more and more cyclical with church attendance. Do you know that? I heard something the other day. I don't know where the stat came from, so I can't really back it up, or you know, it might be completely false. But, <laughs> but they, uh, the, the the statement was this: that several years ago, you were considered a regular church attender if you came. It was like at least three times a month you were considered regular, and now they've backed off that. It's like maybe if you come like every other week, so twice a month, right? And there was a time like if you if you were coming to church once or twice a month, we knocked on your door and said, "Where you been?" <laughs> you know, it was like it was weird, right? And I know you say, well, people are busy now, we've got this and we've got that. I know, we've made up a lot of good excuses to be less committed to the local church. Do not forsake, I know I'm preaching to the choir, you're all here this morning, right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. We are committed to gathering together as the church. That's a New Testament verse, right? We, we gather together as a church. It's, it's, we need regular, because, listen, the way God works in our lives, He doesn't just tend to just every now and then go, pow, I taught you something. And then like six months later, pow, I taught you something. Right? And we grow and we mature and then nothing happens for a year and a half. And then, pow, I taught you something. No, it's, it's gradual. Gradual. Watering the plant every day. Regularly watering the plant and it slowly grows. That's how spiritual growth works. That's why it's important that we're faithful in our personal time with God and we're faithful in our corporate time together because that's just how it works. If you watered your plants half as much as you should, they would be half as healthy as they should. And I can promise you, if you're about half as committed to God and His church as you should be, we will be not about half as healthy as we could be. It's good for our spiritual health. So it's easy for you to say that. You're the pastor. I'm just saying that because the New Testament teaches it. I'd believe it if I wasn't a pastor. Fine. Anyway, enough of that hobby horse. Let's move on. And then we give, right? That's, yeah, move from that to giving, right? But that's the other big applicational point here. We commit to the financial student. We have a very generous church here, right? I'm, we're in a position as a church that so we can get up, we can talk about giving, and we can encourage you to give, and because things we're healthy financially, and, and we've made commitments to be good stewards, and God's blessed us. You don't have to worry about that. We're just saying that to drum up an offering. It's good for you to give. God designed you that way. He didn't. He designed us to make us. Gen, he wants His people to be generous and for us to give joyously and sacrificially and, and have, live with open hands. And that's good and it's healthy for us to do that. It, that's why it feels good to see people open presents at Christmas and they like the presents and you like to watch your kids open the presents and you have it because it's, it's fun to give, right? And God's designed us that way, so we give and we financially support the work of the ministry. But ultimately, the temple was pointing ahead to Jesus, who would come and would 
the temple's going to, I mean, he's going to come and he's going to curse the temple, right? <laughs> when he gets here in the New Testament, and he's going to tell them these walls are coming down, ultimately, and they do. The temple's going to fall. Because the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who John 1 says, tabernacled among us, who came, the very presence of God, comes, God the man, and lays down his life for us so that God's people now, we are the temple. And God has written His Word on our laws. We're under a new covenant with His Word written on our laws. And He's put His Spirit within us as He promised He would at Ezekiel so that we will walk in His law and walk in obedience. It's a whole lot better and all this is pointing us ahead to that. And so that's why I say we shouldn't be less committed but more committed. Because we have the fulfillment of all the shadows they were so committed to. We're sitting under that new covenant that they so badly and desperately needed. And as Hebrews says, as Hebrews teaches, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? We should be even more so committed than they were. But you can't commit yourself into salvation. You trust Christ. You rely on Christ. You rest in what He's done. We, we, we're saved by His commitment to us. Our commitment in the church is only anything because He's committed us. We love Him because He first loved us. So if you don't know Christ today, the moral of the story is let's not pull up ourselves by our bootstraps and start coming to church more and reading our Bibles more so God will love us. The moral of the story is you can't do anything. That's why we needed the new covenant. God has loved us and He has sent His Son to die for us, to save us from the fact that just like them, we're not good at keeping the law. We're bad at it and to redeem us, and to forgive us. And then He puts His Spirit inside of us so that we can walk in His way and walk in His Word. We don't do it perfectly in this life, but we're different because we're God's people. If you're a believer this morning, can you say this morning that you're all in? You're committed to walking with God together as a community of faith? That you're living as the set-apart child of God that God created you to be? You're committed to walking with Him in worship? That's my hope. I don't know what God might have spoken to you about this morning, where He might have put His finger. That's the wonderful thing about God's Word. Sometimes it hits us very narrowly and sometimes it hits us very broadly. That's the good thing about God's Word. Even when we open up something that was written about thousands of years ago in a book that many of you probably never read. It's a very probably never heard preached on. And God's Word has a way of showing us things and new and wonderful truths as we read through it and we journey through it because it's all His Word as we walk in it together.